Hi, everyone. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to give a quick shout out to our awesome sponsors at Zeewee. You know, our furry pals are carnivores, and Zeewee gets that. Their peak prey recipes are spot on with what they would choose in the wild. We're talking real meat, organs, fish, and even green mussels. Zeewee's been all about peak nutrition since 2002. Ethical, sustainable, and packed with only the purest ingredients from New Zealand. If you want your pet munching on what they're biologically designed to thrive on, check out Zeewee. And for 20% off, feel free to put in our discount code, CanonOptima20. What the dog doing? Andre Yu, I'm really excited to have you and talk to you on the podcast. We've had conversations before. You've reached out and you've helped me out before, which is a rarity uh, in the industry to say the least. And I'm just fascinated by you and your business and your footprint and the industry. And so this is just a really exciting opportunity to talk to you. Likewise, thanks for thanks for having me. And also thank you for exchanging ideas by TikTok DMs and phone calls over the last year. What you've built is really impressive, in my opinion, for many different reasons. So I've learned from watching and talking to you as well. That's awesome. That's awesome. So I've talked a little bit about what the show is all about. You're essentially my third guest. And this is all about just unpacking a trainer, getting to know them to a degree that probably most peers may not, whether it's podcasts or otherwise. But just taking a moment to realize how intense professional journey and dog training is, how much it requires of you, not only your mental, emotional, blood, sweat, and tears, if you will. And so it's just realizing that and lending the grace to the conversation. It's just about understanding you and your journey and who you are and getting to know you a little bit better. So I'm really excited to do that. <clears throat> so I guess let's just start off with your journey, where you started, how you got into this crazy industry. It starts off at me at the age of 27. That was when I actually first thought about getting a dog for the first time in my life. Growing up, I had no interest in dogs. They weren't even within things I dreamt about having or interacting with. You'd see dogs growing up in the neighborhood, but I had no affinity towards them. And definitely coming from an immigrant family, I never asked. And I think even if I had asked, the answer from mom and dad would have been no Dogs are dirty. There's no time for dogs. People like us, meaning Chinese people, don't get dogs. It wasn't until much later in life when <clears throat> I met my life partner. She's also uh, from an immigrant family, although she's from Japan. Her parents are from Japan originally. She, for some reason, growing up, always wanted a dog. She fantasized about having one at Christmas as a present. Never happened, but finally we're... We leave the nest. We're now in our late 20s. Things are really stable. And she and I had the conversation. She always wanted one. It was time for me to have one. And it just turns out that one of the my coworkers at the office I was working at was trying to get dogs and rescue placed into homes. And she sent me listings all the time. And finally, one crossed our paths where we decided to pull the trigger. And Within about three weeks, we went through the interview process with the foster organization. We were like checked for a whole bunch of reasons, like stable home, et cetera, et cetera. And we found ourselves the guardians of a three-year-old ex-hunting beagle, first-time dog owners in downtown Toronto, super dense area. And that's where it begins. <laughs> Out of the fried pan and into the fried pan. <laughs> And so what's, uh, what is your background? So you said you worked at an office. What industry were you in at that point in time? I was in high tech. Yeah, I worked for a, 
I was working for the Toronto office for a very large San Francisco-based tech company. And so typical sort of Monday through Friday, get to the office at 8.30ish, leave the office at 6ish, some long weekends here and evenings here and there. Living in a condo in downtown Toronto and just seeing the peers around me, you get influenced by the people that you're around and it's very common for people to couple up. And then once they have disposable income, they get that first dog. And usually that's like the pre-test before having children. We never had children, my partner and I, but we saw that happening and decided that, yeah, we had the resources. We, I remember talking to her and saying, we both have stable work. Yes, we could afford dog daycare and dog walker. We could afford the vet bills, all that stuff, the food and so on and so forth. So that's where I, that's where I came from, the corporate world tech specifically. Yeah, I don't, don't blame your rescue friend. I would have been sending you lift, listings left and right too. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like an ideal candidate. Were you excited about the industry that you were in? Were you passionate about it at that point in time? You know what? I would say yes, I was. Like, It's not like I, I, I didn't run away from tech or the corporate world to go escape to dog training when I finally made that switch. It was more a situation where things weren't great in 2008 and 2009. So by then I had owned my rescue dog for a couple of years and I had developed a strong passion for the hobby of dog training. And specifically, he had so many behavioral issues. It was a necessity to develop a passion for learning how to help dogs that have serious problems. But 2008, 2009 was a subprime mortgage crisis. And that was, things weren't great in tech and in sales. And it was a great time for me to just take a a break and experiment with moving towards entrepreneurship and trying dog training as a profession. And then what information or what trainer, what education did you gobble up to combat some of those behavioral issues? Who did you go to first? Yeah. So the behavioral issues was, it was a long list just to sum them up. The first one that started happening is we noticed that he started becoming on leash aggressive towards other dogs. When we first got him for the first three months, he loved meeting every dog and did all the classic spin, play bow, silly, goofy behaviors. He started going after dogs on leash He started going after dogs at the dog daycare we're putting in, and that was probably a contributing factor that daycare. He started going after dogs hard at the off-leash dog park. That was So dog aggression was the first. He started biting people randomly on the street as well. He had separation anxiety. No resource guarding, though. So those were the primary issues, which was a lot for a brand new dog owner to deal with, right? Bites people, fights dogs, and has separation anxiety. But in terms of like where I started getting my training, the rescue gave me one piece of advice when they handed the keys over. Here's your new dog and here's some paper. And one of the things he said was, you should take obedience classes. Obedience classes are good for your dog. And being new dog owners, we absorb everything that experts tell us. Yes, that sounds reasonable. We should take obedience training. And the only thing they said was, look for a school that uses food. So that was our only criteria. So there was at the time, there was only two or three schools in Toronto uh, at all. And Two of them used food. One bragged about not using food at all. It's compulsion school. So we went to the food school. And at the time, he wasn't leash reactive yet because it was still in the honeymoon period. So we learned our basics like lure the treat up to your face. And when they look at you, yes, and then treat and like how to lure it down and, you know, all the lure reward training. So that was our first exposure to dog training. But that didn't, that was a basics class. It didn't really, of course, answer questions about his developed leash reactivity. So as that started happening, it doesn't fall within the curriculum of what we're learning at our weekly class. So that's where I started going out to Google and Amazon and like looking for books and stuff like that. Our dog walker at the time, who 
was, I'd say, misinformed. He had good intentions. Was like, oh, you got to watch this. He gave me a a DVD box set of an entire um, season of Caesar Milan. Watched one episode, and I could tell then it's this guy is full of shit. What is this like energy? What is this? So like that, I closed that door really quickly. Even as a new dog owner, I read it. I got another book from Amazon that was really silly called The Dog Listener. She's in the UK, and it made me do things like eat. I had to like prepare his food bowl and then put human food on top of it and then eat it first and then give it to him. And we tried it, both of us sitting on the floor as if this would fix the problem. And all I remember, we both said, oh my goodness, I've never seen my dog look so sad is what my partner and I said. We could see the look on their face, like confusion and sadness. Uh, and this is a very food motivated beagle. So I crushed his spirit um, doing that. I didn't waste that long, though, because I went back to the school and said, all right, help me. What do I do about this reactivity? And they hooked me up with a behavior consultant that had good foundational stuff. She's still working in the greater Toronto area these days. She's been at it for 25, 30 years. And she was the one who showed up with, she was wearing blue jeans and she had chicken breast right in the pockets. Just like no, no treat pouches in her jeans pockets. Full of chicken breast. I'm, I don't think I've cried yet in any amount of time. That's <laughs> like the force free nunchucks. I mean, yeah. And she shows up and she's so to the point. It's like, Let's go for a walk. And she just starts showing what basically is like a look at that or engage, disengage. We didn't call it back that, that stuff back then. And then we were amazed that he could like see a dog and then not bark and lunge. And that was the beginning. That was the wedge that got us on the path of that it continued along. So, that's my origin story. I didn't waste too much time on dominance theory. I didn't waste any time going into compulsion. A little bit, of, a couple months of confusion and then chicken breast. That was like the first yeah. the first thing. And did she know your dog had high drive? Had you put in the intake form that it was a you know hunting breed? Did she come stock and prepare for your dog? Or was that just a thing that she normally does? I think that's what she normally does. She just puts <laughs> its raw meat in her pockets. But she knew quickly from just watching him and from the intake when we're talking first in our unit that she's this guy's a really busy dog he just can't settle he's always pacing always looking always searching and that that was his genetics we have his ckc paperwork and i I looked at the breeder that he came from even though he's a rescue and yeah it's like hunting lion beagle so he was a working dog that's awesome first time dog owner in your late 20s and you get a working line that's amazing yeah but then where do you go from there so now you're i'm sure you're emboldened and you're super intrigued and this person comes in with raw chicken ninja stars and shows you the power of reinforcement yep. and so where's the spark that turned to flame for this big transition into what is now a, a pretty impressive journey in dog training yeah the fact that our walks got good again that was amazing because up until the point that she arrived my partner and i were fighting i made her cry as we argued over you're not doing it right. or And it was stressful. And I found myself getting angry at this dog that I loved. Like I was mad at him for reacting in, on the street, but I also knew that was really unfair, but I was just lost. So what really sparked it was like, what a relief. I think that we gave her $400 Canadian for that one-time consult, which at the time was like on the highish end for one visit. I always say like I would have given that person $5,000 for that one visit because the relief that we had and the hope that was restored was like, I just can't put words to it. And I started, we started enjoying walks again and we could, 
go through the neighborhood park, Trinity Bellwoods on Queen Street, which is super dense, and walk past dogs in peace. And we could start taking him on weekends to go get a coffee and have it outside on the bench. And with food and with management, we could enjoy life with our dog again. And that's what really did it for me. I want one, I felt great. And then the next thing is what's next? Okay. Can we get him back at off-leash dog parks again? We did. Could we get him back into obedience classes again? We did multiple rounds. He even did a round of agility classes. Just wanting more, being a perfectionist. Like we got this far, we're good. What's the next step? What's the next step? So every step involved me learning new things, reading new books, getting new DVDs, putting him into more difficult situations and seeing how he did. And I just, as someone who loves growth, like I loved seeing the growth in him and I loved seeing the growth in ourselves. We became very competent handlers in a very short amount of time. I got to wonder if the archetype for a behavior consultant in that time, 2008, is different than the behavior consultant now. Because in knowing the field now, I would say that is a no nonsense, let's get it done. Crap the dog, let's go, let's get it done. You you met a very busy behavior consultant that was probably in a day with dogs and was just not playing around. What's the problem? All right, let's start working through it in the very first session. Yeah. Not a, here's my 12 session package. And then here's what you need to know beforehand. I saw her so one. Now it's, and there was no packages. It was like, if you need me, call me, send me an email. But I saw you once, see you later. And then off she went. That is not common. That person knows what she's doing. What's your, are you able to say her name? What's her name? Yeah. She deserves a lot of credit. And I thank her publicly all the time. Her name is Joan Weston, W E S T O N. Her company, if, she's, if it's still the same company as Fangs, but no Fangs. <laughs> and she does focus on like aggression. That's her. When people hire her for one-on-ones, her folks, those one-on-ones are focused around aggression. Was she force-free? No one was force-free in 2008. She was leading with raw chicken. I can't think that she's coming in heavy-handed. After no, by 2008 standards, for sure, she was as like force-free as you get. But, yeah. but as this might be a tangent, but like in 2008, force-free might have included a halty and putting up pressure if, and nobody would have said, oh, that's compulsion back then. Like the standard for force-free, quote-unquote, there was no term back then. The standard for a positive-based trainer was much lower than it is nowadays. Yeah, I actually learned from a woman who came from some prestigious Canadian dog training academy that was more compulsion-based. That's where I started. But she was from Canada and she ran a business in Hawaii. And that's where, same thing, 2002, no treats, just flat collar and compulsion, basically. So from there, you're obviously getting into a rhythm, your dog's unfolding, blossoming before your eyes. When did you have the aha moment that maybe you wanted to do this for a living? One, I think the first thing was like when I saw how much we benefited from that one visit from Joan, I just felt there must be people out there that are suffering and lost just like we were with the dog that we loved. And it's, I want to give that experience. I want to give that relief to people. That's a good thing to do for people. So that was what, what the impetus was. And then partially too, when I look back at all the mistakes I made in the honeymoon period, no question, some of the mistakes I made aggravated that aggression in that beagle. And that was just through pure ignorance. And I just, having the sense of, I wish I did better for you, Duke. His name was Duke. I wish I did better for you. Had I known these three things on that first day I picked you up from that person's kennel, maybe you wouldn't have been aggressive or maybe you wouldn't have been as aggressive. The desire to do do better for other people's dogs so that they don't 
and go through the same guilt that I still feel to this day regarding him. That was what made me want to do the business. And it would be getting access to people early so that they don't waste time, make mistakes, and then have to dig themselves out of a hole. And then if people are in a hole, I wanted to be able to just show up on one visit, give a lot of people a relief. And if all they could afford was one visit, because they saved every penny and they could just pay whatever it was, the $400 once, could I make a big impact on that person's life, even if they could never afford to see me again, such that they could be like, yes, my life with this dog is much better. And I think we could see it through to the end. That was what I wanted. And then timing. So in 2008, 2009, things weren't going great from an economy perspective. I was in sales in technology, so people weren't buying. And as things were looking sketchy, it made sense for me to make an exit from that career, uh, parachute outside softly, and then I would have enough money because of the financial situation I had to try for a year or two. And if it didn't work, I could just go get a job again. And if it didn't work, I could just keep it as a side hustle. That was, that's what made me do it. But I knew even back then that I wanted to have some sort of big certification or credential or some formal program under my belt. Because at this point, I'd just been, it been Joan with that one lesson, a bunch of books and DVDs, multiple levels of courses for pet owners, and some DVDs and stuff from, uh, dog training behavior consultants that were intended for professionals. So it was all self-study, which is good, but I I didn't want to just go out there with a bunch of things that were duct taped together. So I said that before I tried this side hustle and this experiment, I did want to get some kind of foundational certification. So at the time in 2009, I was just searching and there was the San Francisco SPCA's Academy, which was run by Gene Donaldson, had just stopped running. And that was cool that it was like a six-week or eight-week program. You would do it in the SPCA, which was really neat, but they just stopped doing it. There was a couple of online-only distance course-type ones where it'd be written assignments. And I don't even know if video assignments were around back then. People didn't have the, the expertise to do that. And then there was Karen Pryor Academy that I found. So that one sounded good to me. I didn't know a ton about it. I didn't know a ton about Sharon Pryor or I didn't, I wasn't a nerdy clicker trainer at that time, but, but that's the one I signed up for in 2009. And that was what got me started on the professional path, ready to start taking money for the stuff. That's great. So you attended Karen Pryor and then were you running and gunning, just taking clients before you moved into a brick and mortar space? And if so, how long? The brick and mortar space and the taking clients almost happened at the same time. In two, the early 2010, as I was finishing Karen Pryor Academy, a, a really inexpensive space that was a basement that I still have today. It's just a block away from my house. It's the first location we still have it. It just became available and I just jumped on it. So I had that space, no clients, no classes, no nothing. Then I just put my, my, my sign up, my shingle up online as well, of course. And at that time, it was whatever I would get. So we set up great puppy classes that we still run today. And that is like the bulk of our business. Going back to, I want to do better for you, Duke. It's Duke. If he was not, if he did not grow up in a kennel in the backyard of a house for three years, would he be more confident around dogs, people and stuff? Absolutely. How do I help dogs in the future? Get them early, run a really great puppy socialization classes. So that was my, that was like a huge focus. And then the second is people are going to call me and say, my dog has this, that, or the other leash reactivity weirded out by people. 
So I started seeing people one-on-one either in my facility or I'd go see them in the neighborhood if they lived nearby. And, and I was running and gunning pretty quickly. I was, I was, I started having enough momentum to have regular classes and they just started coming in and I can't quite remember my first five or six clients in terms of the leash reactivity or aggression, but it didn't take long. Like people had good outcomes pretty quickly and referrals grew pretty fast. And within two years from that first date, like I was fully booked and I had to start bringing other people in. So going back to the previous job then, cause you're, you're obviously learning the skill set and figuring out how you're, you're going to train dogs, but in the sales of the former tech side of things, were you doing some sort of facilitation or teaching or you, were you more or less a front man where you're speaking to people as a job and that maybe translated to you running classes all of a sudden and a very new practitioner? That's a good point for sure. Like good presentation skills in the boardroom translate both to classes, especially classes because you're speaking to multiple people at once and work in the room. And definitely sales helps when it comes to doing a one-on-one consultation because the process that we follow as professional salespeople is not unlike what a professional dog behavior consultant should do, which is tell me what the current situation is like. How do you feel about that? Why are we speaking today? What do you hope the future will be like? What does success look like to you? These are questions that salespeople ask. These are questions that dog behavior consultants should ask. And then when it comes to actually then gathering that information, creating a hypothesis in your head about what the plan should be, being able to articulate that plan. Like, this is where we are today. This is where you want to be in the future. I think that this and this needs to be done. Articulating that plan. And then lastly, to convince someone to buy something, you have to give them some sort of proof of concept. You have to show them something that gives them hope that, yes, this plan that you have for me can work. And one thing I teach even my current team when they're newer is that I need you to show at least one piece of magic, one thing before you leave. No matter how convoluted or messy that behavior case is, bites people, bites dogs, separation anxiety. If it's You could talk for two hours just gathering facts, but I need you to leave after that first appointment with at least one thing you show using training that makes the person go, wow, there's hope. Because that's the experience I had. Ziploc bags of chicken breast could get me walking in my neighborhood with no reaction. And all I wanted was relief from stressed out walks. And I got that in that first appointment. It didn't fix the issue. It was largely distraction and a bit of management and a little bit of counter conditioning wasn't really the fix. But it was the hope that I needed. So yeah, a lot of the stuff that I employed through intuition as I started doing behavior cases comes from the fact that a well-run sales cycle has a lot of parallels with a well-run client engagement when it comes to dog behavior. That's great. You're coming in with some superpowers. If you think about the typical dog trainer, maybe not business savvy, and that's a very cumbersome thing to take on a new profession, a new skill set, both with dogs and with clients and being able to articulate to them, but then also being a first-time business owner and trying to run a gun with that and figure that piece out. It, it can be very daunting. And most dog trainers will focus on one or two things at a single time. And as they get their feet underneath them and they're doing great and they're pulling, they're doing great things with dogs and clients, then they start looking more on the business side and mm-hmm. how do they be run a more effective business. But it sounds like you came in 
like a hawk because <laughs> you've got all of these skill sets available. You immediately grabbed a, a facility for you and that clients, which I can't even think of another person that might do that. And so coming in, you're, you've got clients. When did you decide to start taking on? Give me the time frame when you started to take on your first employees and start leading through other trainers. What was the from I got my facility, I've got my clients. How much time until, all right, now I'm going to bring in employees to start the business side of things? Sure. Yeah. Going back to like in 2010, I had it only been four years from when I adopted Duke. So in terms of total dog experience, it was four years and now I had a facility. So one of the shortcomings that I identified quickly was like, okay, what is my like credibility statement? All right. I got this beagle. He's quote unquote psycho. I love him. He's less psycho now. And people on the street wouldn't be able to tell that he had all these issues. And he's off leash at the neighborhood dog park. And he recalls. That's my proof of my competence as I'm a new baby trainer that has a dozen clients. And that alone, in my view, and I have professional certification. So other professionals have seen me train in person and can verify that the guy is decently qualified. But what I knew I was missing was, well, what about the person that's been doing this for 10 years? What about the person who's competed in multiple dog sports? What about the person who has way more experience than me? That was missing. I hadn't in 2010, 2011, done any dog sports or titled anything or any at all. So even as early as 2011, I started working with other experts in my community that had more experience than me that I respected. And I had one trainer named Julie Poslins, who at the time had done all levels of rally obedience with her dogs, had done multiple canine freestyle routines with her dogs. And it's on video, like camcorder and transferred to YouTube, like has done really good canine freestyle routines and runs a very successful dog walking business. And I brought her in as a contractor to run my tricks classes because I wanted to bring that juice to my team. All right. I've got this thing. I got my beagle. I got Karen Pryor. Julie's in my circle and I paid her really well to run tricks classes for my people. I had another person named Mirka Kubasalu. She was originally from Finland and she was in Toronto at the time. And she had competed in Finland in obedience to a pretty high level. And I brought her in to basically represent, this is a Scandinavian trainer, super clean, look at her shit. It's really tight. So she became part of my team. And then I had another person uh, named Emily Fisher, who had been in the rescue industry for 10 years, had her own story and had a lot of cred. And I brought her in as well. So that was as early as 2011. And that was just one year into opening. But the idea was I needed these people to create a team that people could say, look at the the totality of this pool of talent. And not to mention, if I got stuck, I could ask them a question. So it was really good That's to have them. so smart. <laughs> it's so smart. And it's the opposite of what dog trainers do. Yeah. It's, it's the opposite of what I would do. If I grabbed it, listen, the, the standard, I've got my own business now. The standard operating model is, all right, you're a baby. You've got a business. You're doing some things. You bring in help to help you with the dogs and you teach them what you know and grow as a team. You're coming in as the new trainer, so to speak. Yeah, baby trainer. Bringing in juggernauts to solidify your business, but also further your education yeah. while you're growing your business. 100%. That's that's genius. That is, I would never think to do that. Also, it takes a lot of humility 
a lot of insecurities as a new business owner, a new dog trainer, and to link up with these people and have the, I don't know, the even the courage to, hey, come on to my, come into my company. Like, how did you convince them? They knew you, they know you for a, a period of time. I'm not sure if you were friendly with them or if it was just a professional relationship, but how do you approach these people that have been in the business for so long and have quote unquote names to woo them into your business? Yeah. So thinking about it, Mirka, who was from Finland originally, how the heck did we get connected? I can't even remember, but she ended up also doing Karen Prior Academy with the same teacher that I did, but I feel like she did it after me. So it's all like KPA was the connection. I have no clue how she found me. As for the others, Julie Poslins, who was the freestyle person, knew Heidi, my partner and I in Duke, because we ran into her at the park, at the dog park. And this is how basic we were in the beginning. We couldn't get Duke to fetch and bring the ball back. And all she said was, oh, when he comes back halfway, give him a treat. And <laughs> duh. And then like within a couple, like a week of doing that, the guy's a fetching machine. So like we knew Julie because of us being clueless dog owners at the dog park. And as the years went on and I now reached this point, I think the first thing I could say was we knew each other and she knew that we were good with, I was good with my dog. Like I never... Like by watching how you handle dogs, you know, whether the person, how they train and definitely adding Karen prior Academy to my certifications was huge because even though I was a baby trainer, I could say I did this program that even at that time was still respected by the industry. So that adds a lot of credibility. And then the last thing is because my puppy classes and the basic classes I was running, which I felt totally confident in doing puppy classes, basic, no problem within my wheelhouse. I had a massive amount of people that were looking to take the next class, but I didn't have the talent or the experience to, I'm not, I'm going to go teach rally obedience now, having never done it. Of course not. So I, it was easy to say, look, I can fill up three classes in a row, ram them full of dogs, pay you well, you show up one Sunday afternoon or Sunday morning, and you'll make bank teaching click people that clicker train their dogs that already know the basics go have fun. And for that, for them, that was an easy, an easy yes. Like who wouldn't want to teach two or three classes in a row of people that love training with positive reinforcement, people that already have good training mechanics and training skills because I've taught them. And then they just keep going to teach fun stuff. So that's, that was the first year or two of having like people outside of my team. But three years into it, it was when I hired my first salaried person. So their rent and their livelihood was dependent on the success of our business. And they had the same or slightly less experience than me. So I would say that was my first true employee that I had to build up. That was about three and a half years into the journey. And what did they were a trainer? Yeah, they started. So their background I'd describe as worked in the veterinary field, worked in dog walking which dog walking is a great place to get people to handle, to learn about dogs, just the amount of experience they get. So dog walking and had a passion in training because she had a difficult rescue dog, a Sharpe mix that was, that could be pretty dangerous around other animals. And I think also around other people too. She was my first. So she had a similar background to me, difficult rescue beagle and interest in training. And then Shortly after she started talking to me and getting involved in like my community, she also enrolled in the Karen Pryor Academy, which then becomes almost like the stamp because anyone who does that program will leave with a certain set of things that I don't have to worry about being missing. 
they'll have excellent observation skills, they'll have excellent mechanical skills, they'll know how to use reinforcement, and they'll be very good at problem solving. Like those are the four, those are the main things that I know every Karen Pryor Academy student will have, which is why I tend to always want to grab them when I find them. Fantastic. So you've got your first facility, you've got your contractors coming in, you've got puppy courses introduction, you've got intermediate, you've got trick, you've got sport. What's the next move? When do you decide to make uh, the new evolution? So for for quite a while, I actually just put that whole business like on on organic growth mode, just coasting. So it was just growing a modest 5 10% per year. Nothing too exciting. We opened a second location on the East End around year six. And that took a while to build up and it got good as well. And we were just two locations for a while. I added a third employee and a fourth employee very organically into years like six, seven, and eight. So it wasn't really meteoric growth for that time. But I didn't actually have the like the 10x mindset back then. My development as an entrepreneur was pretty basic at that point. And I was just happy to have a business that paid me what I needed to, to take home to have a good life, had employees that were happy with what they were compensated, whether they were part-time or the couple of full-time people I had. Clients were happy. Everything was like everything was fine. Growth, like if we're moving into the business side of things now, the decision to go big wasn't until about nine years in. Um, and it's only because... I received an email, uh, a solicitation email from a, a, a business networking group slash mastermind that basically invited me to join their organization. And getting that email made me think, huh, I'm on, a, I'm on an email list as a successful entrepreneur and they're targeting me to join their club. And I'd never really thought that it could be any bigger than two locations and three employees. I just thought that right, I've peaked. It's good. So it was at that point where I started questioning my limiting beliefs, like how big could this be? Could it be three, four, five locations? Could it go from three, four employees full-time to 10, 11, 12, 20? Like how far could it go? Um, so it wasn't until 2019 that I started thinking about that. And definitely as COVID hit into in March, 2020, that was when I really decided, one, we have to run this really tight and tweak everything just to survive. And definitely... I'm sure you experienced it as well. Late 2020 into all of 2021 was ridiculous levels of dog acquisition. People were just grabbing dogs. The shelters were empty. You couldn't get a, you couldn't even get like a backyard bred puppy, right? So naturally, like recognizing that and jumping on it, 2021 was a, a big year for growth for us. And recognizing that and jumping on it, what does that entail exactly? You say I decided to go big. What do the strides look like there? You need cash to go big. That's the first thing. To hire a person means you're carrying their salary for a while they're not productive. To open a facility means first and last for rent, equipment, getting the place ready in terms of what improvements need to be made. Although dog training spaces don't require ridiculous improvement. So it's not like building a, a spa, right? Where it would be very expensive. So raising capital is really important. And that's just through saving your profits carefully or uh, applying for loans from the bank. And interest rates were pretty cheap in 2019. So it could be a combination of the two. And then the second is just having the guts to say, all right, we're going to, it's going to cost us between 50 and 100K to launch this. But I bet by month six, it's going to be giving us back another 
giving us back five or 10K a month. So we'll get a break even on a year and then and then being confident to do it. And so when you made that leap, did you open up multiple facilities at once or did you just open up a larger facility to make the next level? We chose to go multiple locations in different neighborhoods versus move to a bigger one, mainly because at least where we're at, traffic is terrible and people don't like to go far. In 2019, we had two locations. By 2020, we had three. By the end of 2020, I think we'd signed the lease for the fourth. And then by 2021, we secured the fifth in Toronto, which was the big 4,000 square foot one that we have that's just slightly outside of the city where we get to run like agility programs, reactive dog group class programs indoor. I run my Karen Pryor Academy workshops there now because it's a beautiful space for that sort of stuff. Seminars I run there as well. So that was, so yeah, that was, it was about getting, it was about adding more locations versus closing one to then open a bigger one. What was the time frame? So there's a ratio, right? As you step away from being in front of dogs full-time to business 10% of the time, like where did you, what year were you doing 50-50 where it was more attention was needed on the business side of things, the administrative side of things, the development side of things versus training? And talk to me about the progression of kind of taking a step back and running a larger organization and not being leash on the ground, if you will. Yeah, I think that it would have been around 2018 when I brought on my second or third full-time, all you do is dog training. By the time I had three full-time dog trainers that were just training dogs or teaching classes or doing private lessons, that was when I dipped. That's when I was able to go from 50-50 to more like 25-75, 25 teaching, working with clients and dogs and 75% other. And now I would say if you exclude me teaching Karen Prior Academy, because I'll still put that on the business side because I'm not really working dogs. I'm working professional humans working their dog. Now I'm like about 10% dog, 90% other. Right. So here's a good question. What were your favorite things about all of this? Not just dog training, the business side of things as you emerged, if you will, in the early years. And what are your favorite things now? Like the thing that really drives you, the thing that turns the light on then versus the thing that really gets you going now? I think what in the early days, what got me excited was seeing people in the class in the classroom or one-on-one when I'm working with humans and their dogs. And I can see a look on their face where I managed to convince them just how fucking brilliant their dog is. No matter what it is, it could be a first-time dog owner seeing their dog figure out how to like paw a button and they taught it. They did the teaching and they taught their dog how to do that operant behavior or to go and bop a cone and come back. So that might be in the classroom for just the basic class. But whenever I would see that moment where people would go, oh my goodness, my dog is so smart. I can't believe it. And I taught my dog this. That would that still gets me very excited. Don't get me wrong. And then the parallel to that would be out in the field. I'm working with a client whose dog is reactive and barks and lunges at things. And when I would see the client just relax, keep the leash loose, see something in the environment, and then voluntarily make a good choice like to wander away and sniff. And then the look on that client's face of disbelief, like seeing that is what filled my cup in the early days because I was in the field all the time or, or mostly. And don't get me wrong, even in the 10% that I still see people, I, that still gets me very excited. I just don't do it as much anymore. I can't. My, re- my responsibilities are elsewhere. I think what gets me very excited nowadays is two things. 
I like seeing my team members who are six months or one year into the profession experiencing all these things themselves. I love seeing our clients leave glowing reviews or voluntarily sending emails to say, I just want to tell you about Billy and how Billy has been so instrumental in my relationship with my dog. And the things that she's taught has helped me and my dog and their relationship in these different ways. And when I see my staff feel that, which is what I felt when I started, that makes me really happy because it means that I'm creating opportunities for people who might not have all the privileges or assets and resources or skills that I had in 2010, like you said, to just take this thing off like a rocket. Some of the people that work for me would never be able to pull that off because of they don't have the experience or the resources. But because I've built a business that can hire people, ramp them up and put them out working, they get to experience this. And that really makes me happy. If I can give up a part B to what makes me excited, figuring out ways to break through the noise these days gets me very excited. Like when, because we're constantly testing things. Like we put stuff out, it flops. We put stuff out, it flops. We put stuff out, it flops. We put stuff out, it sticks. And people gravitate towards it. That gets me very excited. And in this respect, that whole passion I had about pl- figuring out Duke when his and his reactivity and seeing it improve and just constant improvement, iteration, testing, trying, like I get that sort of nerdy testing and feedback and reinforcement in our marketing and the way we do our business. So my business is now almost like my rescue dog, if that makes sense. Yeah. So are you speaking like specifically about the algorithms of social media and marketing through social media? Or are you talking about larger scale marketing with all the other avenues that might be quintessential for a business? I think social media is a part of it. Like I, I still love experimenting on social media a little bit. My marketing manager and I meet regularly to talk about what we're going to try next and to gather data. So it's a component of it. It can also just be as simple as like the words we use to describe services and whether they resonate with people. So that could be as simple as what does the copy on the class for this on our website say? How do we describe the classes? For example, in our Vancouver team, we tried doing a senior dogs class because we felt like, yeah, people with 10, 11, 12 year old dogs would benefit from doing mental enrichment, learning about keeping their bodies moving and so on and so forth. We tested and it flopped. But conversely, another example, we had a program called the Canine Good Neighbor class, which is the Canadian version of the Canine Good Citizen. And for years and years, it never sold. It sold okay. Like people would take it. All we did was rename the thing Foundation Skills Level 2. And then it just sold like hotcakes. So that's just a brand test. The curriculum's the same. And that gets me excited. It's a funny thing, though. Wouldn't you say that you've come full circle? Back in the corporate world, but I manage it from the top level for a much smaller organization. It's funny, but you're in your own boardroom now. Pretty much. Probably. But using the same lenses and probably, obviously, not maybe not the same scale or, but very, I would imagine, very similar to where you started the things that made you great in your former industry are more to fruition now comparative to when you were running and gunning and had one facility and modest. Yeah, I'd say so. And I feel pretty privileged to be able to even to have the resources and the time to be able to just play with that. That's very enriching. Like every entrepreneur talks about how like you got to get out of working in the business and work on the business. 
So I feel incredibly lucky to be in a place where I'm 75, 60, 75% working on the business versus in it. Yeah. I think that there's a model or a structure out there that, that looks to take advantage of a lot of dog trainers at sensitive phases and latch onto them and sell them on what they can do for their business. You're seeing a huge change on social media with ads, you know, people claiming that they can take a dog trainer to a seven figure business. And it's just interesting to hear somebody that did it on their own. And no, it ta- I'm sure it took a one thing that hasn't been mentioned here is the guts that it took. Every stage of novelty comes insecurity. Mm-hmm. It's an, a brave new world that you're trying to conquer. How do you just move forward with something like that? How, you, you, what do you have to say to people that want that, but have fears, have doubts, just don't have the confidence to make some of the changes to achieve a new echelon in their particular dog training business? There's many different approaches to growth and there's no one right or wrong way. There's the traditional sort of like Silicon Valley.com VC funded approach, which is spend all the money, operate at a loss and hope and pray the thing works out. But the challenge with our industry is that's probably your house on the line or any life savings that you may have made. And you're not playing with other people's money the way that the the tech bros are. I actively discourage people from getting into massive amounts of debt because they believe in their business. I think that is just too much for most people to bear. And I really recommend not doing it. I believe that you can actually, you don't have to hit a home run. You can actually just get a lot of ones and twos and just bunt. And you can win a game just by doing that. So make a small incremental change. Bring on one half like contractor or someone on a part-time basis who still works as a dog walker throughout the day. So that's so the dog walking gig and your part-time work is enough to put together a living. That way, if it doesn't work out, you could reduce their hours, let them go and not worry about them losing their house. And they understand it, you know, it's baby steps. Um, I think that's the advice that I have for anyone who's afraid of, of going beyond what they have is to just like, you don't have to go all the way in one shot. It's not literally a step like this you have to take. There are little tiny micro steps along the way, or it's more of a a slope. And that's the approach that I've generally taken over the years until later when I started making bigger leaps. But, but even then it is all about experimentation. So whether it's like dog training where it's today i actually saw a client nothing too severe but i have a hypothesis it's this dog doesn't get any off-leash time so what happens if i instruct the clients to do three off-leash walks or hikes per week what is the effect on their behavior let's test but and if there's no change in the behavior all right try something else hypothesis get your data see what the outcome is in terms of the behavior we can do the same with businesses as well all right, I have a hypothesis that people want day training. Create a minimally viable product. I'm offering day training services now. Set the rate that you think makes sense. Put it out there. Run it for three months, four months, and see what happens. And if it doesn't work, close it down and then repeat the process. That isn't going to cause you to lose your home or your shirt or destroy your business. I think that's a really powerful statement. I think even myself, when I think about changes and the business, I think of it in terms of all or nothing, because as a having a small business, we think about things in terms of success or failure. 
But what you're saying is it's not a it's not on the line. Just make go into a decision with the understanding that if it doesn't work for X amount of months, okay, fine. But in that, you're also not overextending yourself with that kind of mindset. Yep. And you're not, it, it reduces the pressure of, all right, I've made a change in my business. I've never done this before. I'm going to do this. This is my new arm. Here I go. That's the more or less the emotional connection that a lot of people feel to what I'm doing works, but what happens if I try something else? What happens if I try to take a step up in this whole thing? What if I fail? So I think that's a really amazing thing to, for I, even myself, but other dog trainers to, to think about is to not look at things in terms of success or failure to just take the bunt yep. as many bunts as you can. That's great. I failed so many times. Like I've had hypotheses we've tried and then we run it for a bit and it's now nah, this doesn't work for a variety of reasons. And I, and, and there are some ones, there are some changes that we've made as a company, even recently, like in the last couple of years where it's, that was a total mistake. And when I'm in a, when I'm in a funk, I might say, geez, what a waste of six months of our life. We spent all that energy to move towards this. It fell flat on its face that we had to basically undo everything and go back to where we were. And a peer of mine said that, you know what, if you tried something and it didn't sink the business, consider that a win because you learn from it. So many iterations and testing is required. We ran a day school in 2015 that I closed after 90 days because we weren't ready for it. We didn't have the staff and the the outcome for the dogs weren't great. Even though, And we didn't like the work, even though people were lining up to give us money to do that. We made a failed attempt to making some of our programs open enrollment when they really shouldn't have been. Like Many of our programs are open enrollment, but some weren't. And we decided to make all of them open enrollment. And that absolutely tanked some of our advanced classes that require week after week building. So we had to undo that. And I've overhired. This is public information because I talked about it at my keynote speech at the APDT conference. But I thought that 2022 would be as big as 2021. So we went big and we hired three more people in 2022 and we had to lay them off because they, the growth rate in 22 was much more normal versus 21. So failure and learning from failure is something that should be celebrated. And I think it all is based on making sure that when you test something, just make sure it's like you fail fast, right? Try it out, set it up, make sure that even if you lose it, it's not going to tank you and then try again. People that don't try never do reach meteoric growth. Right. Great. So what's next? Have you... Based on where you're at, um, are there any aspirations to shift your business or move into another arena? What's it look like for you? What we're doing these days is we're just continuing to refine what we do at our facilities in Toronto. We're happy with the size we're at right now in Toronto. So it is about serving our existing community with more classes. And we've been like, we have a great agility program that's just a year old. And we managed to, going back to how I did in 2011, we're partnered with, I think, the best team to deliver those. They compete every weekend. Their dogs are amazing. They're great with people. And it's a partnership that we have. So we also have a great competition rally obedience team. Same thing. These are people that trial frequently and they own that and we partner with them because it's outside of our wheelhouse. We're pet dog trainers and we work on things like 
leash reactivity, aggression, resource guarding, separation anxiety. We're not sport people. So developing more partnerships to bring in more sports for our community is huge. Um, the other thing that I really want to take a serious look at is supporting our existing community through online. So a number of like our clients who see us in the brick and mortar could benefit tremendously from having access to our knowledge when they're not in the classroom. And the way it works really right now is we see you once a week. But why can't those people also be part of our community and access our information from their phone or from their home? So that so building a community to support our community that's online, that is a major thing for me next year. I know a lot of businesses, a lot of dog trainers, consultants are moving to online. Certainly the technology is there to support it being achieved efficiently, especially with AI, basically writing your scripts, anything that you want. Any curriculum gets spit out. That's fantastic. This has been wonderful. Honestly, it's it's an inspiration hearing you and your journey. It's I think a lot of people want to be successful in dog training. And I would say the difference in what I'm hearing from you and what I hear from a lot of other dog trainers is that typically it starts with this like you said before, before we start recording, like the quintessential, like I grew up with dogs, I love dogs, I and it just starts with this emotional journey, and you start touching and connecting with more clients and more dogs, and then all of a sudden you're a business owner, mm. right? And it's maybe not something you actually got into it for, and so it's business is a big insecurity for a lot of dog trainers. Fear is a big problem for a lot of dog trainers on the business side. So this was really inspiring to hear somebody who looked at it from a very analytical perspective, a very logical perspective. And the biggest thing that I got from this today is it's not an all or nothing strategy when it comes to business. It's tinkering. It's bunting. I thought that was really fantastic. It was genius. Yeah. Yeah. I stole that from a mentor. So it's great. But it's great. He's built a, he's built a $20 million a year business just through bunting. Wow. Like he never. In a different field? In, in tech, a different field. Okay. But it's been a 20-year journey of basically bunting or getting one the first player on the first base. I'm just repeating that over and over again. It doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be some crazy VC-backed startup where the ad budgets are insane and it's all or nothing. Do you have um, while we're on the subject because it sounds like you have you have peers and confidants that are more obviously really successful in business, but do you have any resources off the top of your head where a dog trainer can go and get a little bit more savvy with the business side of things. Yeah, I I know of a number of dog training specific sort of communities. They are positive reinforcement focused, but one that I should give a shout out to is called Dog Biz B I Z. I hope that's right. It's Veronica Bautel and Gina Ferrace, and they have an a monthly membership program called Thrive, which I think is I'm not a member of it because. It's not, I'm not their target audience. It's the owner operator that wants to go from burnout and barely making ends meet to having a good living. And it's a modest monthly fee to be in this community where they can, they meet once in a while and just like bounce ideas off of each other and share ideas. And dog business program is all about courses to teach people how to be better at marketing. So I think that that's my first sort of, that's where I would send people first. And then otherwise I would look into local entrepreneur or small business groups because meeting with people outside of your industry can be very beneficial. And it can be very comforting to hear about someone who's got a interior design firm with two employees that's 
relatively small, talk about the same hardships that you might be having with your two employee dog training business. And the ideas that you might offer them could benefit and, and vice versa. So those are the two things I'd recommend. Fantastic. This was great. I appreciate your time today. I really do. I'm just really excited to have people hear about how your journey and what you've got going on, what you were able to accomplish. It, it really is. I've said it before, but that's it's pretty inspiring. And I, I got to be honest with you. It's funny how the, I have these conversations and one the, the one common theme is that I leave inspired because you truly get a sense for someone when you hear about like how they started the beginning, middle and end, their passions, their achievements, their failures. Like it just, it, it really, I don't know, gives you a sense of connection that even though we're all clawing at the walls and yelling at each other, there is a, we're all in the same industry. We all have the same fears at the end of the night. We all have the same stress. Mm -hmm. So this is pretty awesome. I really appreciate you inviting me to be a guest and I look forward to seeing what people think about our conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. I appreciate you. Likewise, keep on doing the great work you do and I'll catch you next time.